Well, last week I read an article about the exploits of a man named Parvez Henry Gill. This guy's a Christian businessman in Pakistan's largest city, Karachi. The Christians in this overwhelmingly Muslim community have faced intense persecution for decades, and actually the persecution is getting um, worse uh, in recent times. As a, le- as a leader in his community, Parvez Gill has spent ways, trying to figure out ways to um, protect Christians from the violence and from the persecution. See, a lot of the Christians are actually leaving Karachi because they just can't take it anymore, and Parvez G- uh, Henry Gill wants to stop this exodus from his town. And so about four years ago, he claims that God came to him in a dream, and he says, I want you to do something good for the people here. And so he decided um, to build a cross in the town, not just a cross like the largest cross in Asia. This thing is massive. (laughs) This is where the story gets good. About four years ago, he hires a bunch of Muslim workers to come build his tower because this is literally all that he could find to build his cross. And so they started building a tower and they spent years working on this. And a few weeks ago, they're like, wait a minute, we're building a cross. (laughs) And they... uh, (laughs) They all left the job, and uh, that's when it made international headlines. He lost most of his help. Um, the cross is still under construction, but it's actually uh, getting close to being complete. Here's a side note. A couple of the articles I read said that a few of the Muslim workers decided to stay in town and help him because they respect this businessman so much, which I think is a cool testimony to this guy's um, ambition. But either way, this cross is creating quite a stir. Imagine driving into this Muslim town, and you see a giant cross towering above the city, the skyline, not much of a skyline, but that cross is huge. There's a lot of nervous Christians in Karachi right now, as you can imagine. They've already faced persecution for years, and now they have this giant cross, like almost attracting like a bullseye, more violence. You think this will calm the Muslim community there? That's what they think, right? But Parvez Gil is not worried at all. He, he's confident that God will protect him. In the articles that I read, it said that he looks to Psalm 91, which says, God protects those who do his will. So he's built this giant cross as a symbol of his safety. There's a lot we could say about this project, a lot. I'm sure you've got a lot of thoughts boiling in your mind, like, wait a minute. But let's just compare it to another international headline we've read lately about the cross of Jesus Christ. Earlier this February, you remember, ISIS released another video of 21 Egyptian Christians dressed in orange, They were marched out onto the beaches in northern Libya. These were migrant workers looking to make money. A couple of them were engaged. They had families. They had a lot, but they were Christians. And so they were abducted, marched onto the beaches of northern Libya, and they were mocked and murdered. The video, which I have not seen, that they sent across the world showing this persecution that's happening in the world right now, clearly labeled these men people of the cross. That's why they died. It was on the subtitle. These are people of the cross. It did not protect them in this moment. In fact, it was the very reason that they died. And so here we have it. In a, in a couple of months, we have international headlines of the cross. We see people dying in the name of the cross, and we see others hiding behind a 140-foot bulletproof version of the cross. Literally, it's bulletproof. How do we reconcile this? Some, some proclaim Christianity as the symbol of safety, and others die because they're Christians. How do we reconcile? I'm not suggesting for a moment that there's two forms of Christianity. Pick, pick the, you can pick the comfortable side or the suffering version, right? That, that, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am suggesting is that throughout church history, there have been men and women that have tried to take the sting out of the cross and take the cross out of Christianity, take suffering out of the gospel, and it's impossible to do. 
The New Testament addresses this at every turn. It was happening as the New Testament was being written. People were trying to take suffering out of the gospel. And if you're, you've been here the last two weeks in our study of 2 Timothy, you, you'll hear Paul pleading, Timothy, join me in suffering for the gospel, Timothy. The gospel is so much better than any of us know. It brings life and immortality, but it also brings suffering. And so join me in proclaiming the gospel, Timothy, and join me in suffering for the gospel because the way of the king is the way of the cross. And so this message this morning is going to be a footnote into this study in 2 Timothy. We've looked at it for two weeks. The gospel brings suffering. The gospel brings suffering. We're going to take a little break and look at this theme from another portion of the scripture. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to explore the same theme and the same tension where people want to take the suffering out of the gospel and people want just the gospel. This tension exists in Mark chapter 10. These are two very familiar stories. You know them well, um, most likely if you've been around church for a while. But we're going to look at these two different approaches to Jesus and learn about discipleship in the process. So we'll begin in verse 35 and take it to the end of the chapter. Mark 10, 35 to 52. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry and shout out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately... He recovered his sight, and he followed him on the way. Let us pray. God, we humbly come this morning to your word, knowing that your words are the words of life, and also knowing that we're deaf and blind and ignorant, and that we cannot understand or hear or see your word this morning without your help. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to perceive your text this morning, God. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, on the surface, these two stories don't have a lot in common. 
It's like a random day in Jesus' ministry, right? He will rebuke his disciples and he'll heal a blind man. This is just a normal day of the life of Jesus, right? But if we dig a little bit, Mark wants us to compare and contrast these two encounters. He wants us to look at James and John. He wants us to look at Bartimaeus as two models of discipleship. That's why he puts them right next to each other, okay? So we're going to look at two models of discipleship. Our outline is very simple. Then we're going to look at James and John's requests. We're going to look at Bartimaeus' request. And then we're going to look at their different approaches to discipleship and compare and contrast a little bit and, and diagnose our own thoughts about discipleship. So let's start with James and John. Earlier in the book, James and John were nicknamed. Do you remember their nickname that Jesus gave them? The Sons of Thunder, right? Zebedee's children, the Sons of Thunder. I think this is the most awesome nickname in the Bible, right? We understand why they got their nickname here in this story just a little bit. They walk up to Jesus in verse 35 and they drop a bomb, <laughs> right? We want to share in your glory, okay? It's a bold question. These were bold men, apparently, Sons of Thunder. But if we take a second to locate ourselves in the Gospel of Mark and find out when they ask the question, it won't just be bold, it'll also be pretty immature and, and dumb. <laughs> bad timing, very bad timing, okay? So let's locate ourselves in Mark's gospel. Mark is arranged geographically. In other words, it's like a good science fiction book. You gotta read it with a map, all right? The best way to get out, the, uh, out of uh, Mark's gospel is to follow it along on the map. In the first eight chapters, he's gonna be in the north, Galilee. He's gonna be jumping around the Sea of Galilee, bouncing around, doing all of his miracles among the blue-collar workers up there in the fishing towns of Galilee. Mark chapters 11 through 16, he's going to spend that one famous week in Jerusalem. And so Mark 8 to 10 is the journey from the north to the south. He will have established his ministry in the first eight chapters. He will go teach his disciples about discipleship on the way down, and then he will um, fulfill his purpose in the end of the book. It's really a fascinating structure, and we'll get into that next year when we go through the book of Mark. But we are in right now Mark chapters 8 through 10, the heart of the gospel. The heart of this book right here. He's teaching his disciples about discipleship. And on this journey, Jesus is going to tell them very clearly three times what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He's going to be there. He's going to be beaten, killed, and he'll rise again. And after each one of these predictions, his disciples will say something very ignorant. Jesus will then teach them about discipleship, and they'll move on to the next instance. Happens three times. What we just read is the account that follows Jesus' third and final prediction. Read it with me in verse 33 of chapter 10. It's the, the final prediction, and it's very intimate, and it is very detailed. Jesus said, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus could not have been any clearer. Jerusalem will be messy. When, when we get to the top of this mountain, guys, I'm going to get spit on. I'm going to get handed over. I'm going to die. Okay? I'm going to die. He just laid out his mission. He laid out his heart. And this is the context for James and John's question. They slither up to the front of the line. They apparently weren't listening. And they come up to him and they say, Jesus we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I love this little detail. It's just such an immature question, right? We want you to do whatever we ask. They have to hedge their bets a little bit because they know it's such a bold question. This is like classic seven-year-old logic, right? I'm going to ask you a question, but I'm not going to ask it until you promise to say yes, okay? All right, we're cool. 
win-win, everybody, right? But the problem is this only works on five and six-year-old children. It doesn't work on adults, okay? Um, Jesus did not take the bait. They said, we want, to, want you to do whatever we ask. And he looks at them after just laying out his heart and saying, I'm gonna be spit on, I'm gonna die. And he just says, what do you want me to do for you? In verse 37, they say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. They just completely misunderstood it. And Mark is inviting us to roll our eyes. This is the third time this has happened. And you just like want to just take a deep breath and go, come on, guys, get with it. But if we simply roll our eyes and move on, we'll learn nothing. If that's all we do when we read the Bible and say, that was weird, (laughs) we'll learn nothing. You see, the Bible records bad questions because our hearts are filled with bad questions. And so we need to explore their minds a little bit and try to jump in their heads and try to see if we can locate some of our own thinking and their thinking, and I think that we can. Um, I think James and John are actually trying to impress Jesus here. They take it way out of context. They're not listening, but I think the way that they structure this question, they come up and they say, we want to sit at your right and at your left. You know that the right is the the highest place of honor, the left is the second highest place of honor, but what is the place of honor? The center. The center, right? So they come up to Jesus and essentially affirm Jesus. You're number one, Jesus, and there is no denying that. When we get to Jerusalem, something incredible is going to happen there. You are number one. This is a very Christ-centered request. You're number one, Christ. And even more, there's a really interesting detail. They're brothers, they're sons of thunder. If you have a brother, or if you have two children, they're siblings. Think of this. Who asks to sit on the right, which was clearly the better seat? Didn't matter. It didn't matter to them. James and John, brothers who I'm sure had fought their entire lives, walk up to Jesus and they say, we just want to be near you. James, you know, John can sit at the right, I'll sit at the left, it's fine. I don't mind the left side. John's like, no, you sit at the right, I don't care. Right? They were trying to be selfless, I think. Perhaps in the immature minds of James and John, they're really trying to honor Christ. They're trying to be Christ-centered. But you just don't have to look too hard to say, this is very self-centered, isn't it? They were clothing their selfish request in spiritual language. The Christ-centered responses were actually very self-centered. And this is very easy for us to do, isn't it? We, we bring our spiritual request, like, Lord, I will worship you with my hands lifted high and sing as loud as I possibly can as long as the style suits me. Clothing our spiritual language in very self-centered ideals. I'll gladly go to this church and plug in and uh, you know, establish myself here as long as you meet all of my needs. We're a pretty complex family. We have lots of needs. Meet all of our needs. And we'll, we'll come here, right? Or Jesus, I will serve you and use my gifts for you as long as I am recognized for my hard work right? It's easy for us to do. This kind of attitude essentially comes up to Jesus and it says, Jesus, you are great and so am I. You're great and I am too. They're affirming Jesus and they're affirming themselves and I think we do this. I think we subtly affirm ourselves much more than we mean to. This is James and John. Jesus, when we get to Jerusalem, we know what's going to happen. You're going to dominate no matter what you're saying. You're going you're gonna to rule. We know this and we believe that we have a central place in that story. Jesus is so gracious in this moment, they're not getting it. He just looks at him and he says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking, James and John. You see, I, I will be glorified in Jerusalem, but do you remember the peak of 
Christ's glory is the cross. He will be glorified in Jerusalem, and he will be accompanied by men on his right hand and on his left-hand side. But who were those men? Crucified criminals on their own crosses. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink my cup, and can you be baptized with the baptism with their child will be baptized with? They hadn't absorbed it yet. The way of Jerusalem is the way of the cross. And so Jesus has to prepare them in verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup and be baptized with my baptism? And so what does he mean by this? He throws out two metaphors, metaphors that are very dear to the church, the cup and the baptism. But in this context, he's referring to suffering. In the Old Testament, the cup typically meant God's cup of judgment. And to be baptized in the Old Testament meant to be submerged into suffering. And so Jesus is essentially saying, are you ready? You don't know what you're asking. Are you ready to drink my cup and to be baptized like me? Because when I get to Jerusalem, it will be filled with suffering. And they were quick to answer. Yeah, we are. We, sure. We can do that. If Jerusalem requires a little bit of uh, pain and suffering, we'll do that. As long as we can still get that glory. We can drink that cup. They were bold and courageous and ambitious and confident. And Jesus had to dash their dreams in verse 39 said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or left, that's not mine to grant. But that is for those for whom it has been prepared. This is a difficult lesson for them. They want glory. They want honor. And Jesus has to dash, them, dash their hopes and say, listen, there's no glory in Jerusalem for you. There's only pain and suffering and the cross. That's what you have to look forward to, not honor and glory and prestige and comfort. Get it out of your mind. This is a profound lesson and it should have ended, but his disciples kept it going, right? They started fighting. They were, they were bickering within themselves. There's 12 men. How many sides does Jesus have? Two. That leaves 10 men out. And no, nobody in that group wanted to say, I'm, I'm less worthy than you. Like, I've been here all three years. I put in the time I've, I've done the hard work. And so they start fighting. They were indignant, furious with James and John and at each other. And you just have to imagine Jesus has just poured out his heart, and now these boys are just fighting. And he looks at them, the future church, the men that would take his precious gospel around the world, and he calls them together. And he's going to give them one of the most profound, breathtaking lessons in the scripture. So listen closely. He calls them together, and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Is profound, one of the most profound paragraphs in the entire scriptures. He'll gather his disciples, these, these men that have followed him, the future church, and tell them that they will have a different mindset when it comes to power and status and comfort and luxury and everything else that they wanted. You see, the Gentiles, when they gain control, they act like little ferocious gods. They lord it over everyone and they act, practice authority and exercise authority because they think they're big shots. And Jesus turns this type of leadership on its head, even though this is the leadership that you and I are born dreaming about. 
We want to be great. We want to be ambitious. We want to do great things. We want to climb that ladder. Even in the church, we want to climb that ladder. And Jesus flips it on its head and he says, no, shall not be so among you. The Greek is actually extremely emphatic. It will not be that way among you. In other words, don't aspire to this. He's saying, it's impossible. You can't be in my church and have this attitude. Because the members and the leaders of Jesus Christ's church will look and act like Jesus Christ. It will not be marked by a Gentile form of leadership and by a pagan and worldly form of leadership where we rule and act like lords over other people. It will be like Jesus who died and suffered and gave his life as a ransom for those that he loved. That's the attitude that will exist within the church. We don't look like bloodthirsty, selfish Gentile gods. We look like the gracious son of God who laid down his life to save his church. Disciples will look like Jesus. And so hear this, if you want a Christ-centered life, if you want to be a true disciple of Jesus this morning, prepare for a cross-centered life. Prepare to live the life that Jesus lived. It was one of suffering. There's no other option. We are people of the cross. We don't lust for power and control and comfort and safety. And we don't structure our lives in such a way that that is our vision and that's our goal, comfort and safety. We structure our lives around the cross. We suffer and we serve and we die in the name of Jesus who suffered and served and died for us. This is difficult. This is heavy It's hard for our hearts to hear this and just accept it and embrace it. And that is why I believe that Mark immediately follows this with the story of blind Bartimaeus. He's going to immediately follow this lesson with Bartimaeus, who will be the paradigm for Christian discipleship. You may have always heard of this as just a random little healing story on his way up to Jerusalem, but there are clues in the text which show that Bartimaeus is a disciple. And not only that, he is the key disciple. So let's pick it up in Mark 46. Mark tells us that the crowd comes to Jericho. Again, another geographical um, landmark. This is the last stop on the way to Jerusalem. Okay, Jericho is about 20 miles away from Jerusalem. It's a day's walk, but it is 3,500 feet below Jerusalem. All right, that's a, that's a day right there. That's a day of hiking. Okay, so if Jerusalem is Boone, all right, Jericho is Lenore. This is your last chance to get a Krispy Kreme and a tank of gas before you head up the hill. This is the last stop on the way to Jerusalem, and I'm sure it's the last time Jericho will ever be compared to Lenore. So So they're leaving. They they come to Jericho, and they're walking out the backside of the city. They're walking up. They're leaving, and they walk past a beggar. And when this man heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, actually, um, in Luke, he inquires, who's this? What's going on? What's happening? They say, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. This is profound. We heard last week, and if you're familiar with the scriptures, Nazareth is code word for loser, right? You don't, nothing good comes from Nazareth. That's what Nicodemus said. What good comes out of Nazareth? Nothing. It's just this random little podunk town up north. And Bartimaeus, being in the south, would have known that, oh, Nazareth, nothing. And and yet somehow he did know that something good has come out of Nazareth. That's Jesus of Nazareth. And he immediately screams, Jesus, son of David. This wasn't just anybody from a little tiny town up north. This was the son of David, the long-awaited king. 
that was going into Jerusalem to save his people. But now the crowd had very little patience. They silenced him. They shut him up. This blind beggar screaming, oh, shut up, man. He has nothing to do with, Jesus wants nothing to do with you. We're on our way to Jerusalem. Can't you see this is a very important trip? Maybe you remember a couple weeks ago, Scott mentioned the kind of the key interaction with beggars. Um, eye contact, right? If you don't want to give, you don't look. You just keep your eyes away from them. But if you want to give, you make eye contact. That's the key interaction, right? You, you know that's true. But imagine being a blind beggar. All you have is your voice. You scream, help. And maybe they were emboldened because this man was blind and they would never be seen. They could be jerks to him. They walk up to him and they say, shut up. He doesn't care. Be quiet. He doesn't care. This is sad. Very sad. And in fact, if we dig behind the text just one bit, just one layer, we're going to see that this is very ironic and even more tragic. You need to know who's quieting him. Who is this crowd? Usually Jesus traveled with the crowd. He was a popular figure. People knew who he was. And so he collected this giant crowd because he healed people. And he did stuff like this all the time. So he would always gather a crowd. But the text is clear. He's going to Jerusalem. And large crowd was following him. He wasn't just going to Jerusalem for vacation. Do you remember why he's going to Jerusalem here? He's going to celebrate Passover. Right, next week would be the Passover feast. And we know that's the day that he died on the cross and we know that this journey, the Jews took this journey three times a year. There were three great pilgrimage feasts that all the Jews in Israel would gather together. They would join on the roads and they would walk up to Jerusalem. This is the crowd that is walking up to Jerusalem. They're leaving Jericho and all of Israel is kind of walking up this hill. The journey was festive. Everybody, friends and family, they're all going along together. They're preparing their hearts for what lies ahead in Jerusalem. They're excited. It's like a big giant feast that they're going to go partake in the next week. It's festive. They're crying out to God. And over the years, they had developed a really interesting tradition. They actually had a soundtrack for the road. They had created a mixtape, all right, for the journey. So they would sing songs as they walked up the hill. And you can find these in your psalms. If you have... The book of Psalms, maybe slip over there and, and find Psalm 120 to 134. Really interesting to me. These are labeled Psalms of Ascent. And if you've ever run, come across these Psalms and you wonder, why are they labeled Psalms of Ascent? Well, this is why. Three times a year, the Jews would sing these songs on their ascent from Jericho to Jerusalem. They would sing these Psalms, getting their heart ready for this feast, for what awaited them in Jerusalem. Psalms of Ascent. The crowd is leaving Jerusalem and they're walking out and they're singing these psalms. I want to read you one. It is very possible that this psalm was on their lips at this moment. If it wasn't on their lips, it's in their heads. They just sang it or they're preparing their hearts to sing it. Psalm 123, let's read it. Remember, they're leaving Jericho and they're looking up to the mountain. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have endured more than enough contempt. Have mercy. They're crying out for God to have mercy. We are tired of contempt. God, we are a beaten and rejected people. We're tired of content. We lift our eyes to you. They're walking out. These kind of psalms are on their hearts when they hear the screeches of this 
annoying beggar screaming out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy, mercy. And they look at him and they say, shut up. He doesn't care. Because they're screaming for mercy themselves. But Jesus did care. Jesus has been aggressively cutting this path to Jerusalem. And he stops. He heard the cries of Bartimaeus and he stopped. And let me just encourage you with this. If you're beaten down this morning and you feel like nobody's listening to you and nobody cares about you, take comfort that Jesus hears your cries of mercy. It is a cry that he loves to answer and loves to hear. So keep crying. Scream louder. Jesus stopped and he heard. And he calls Bartimaeus. That's a discipleship word. He calls him. When the blind man jumped up and ran to him, Jesus asked him a familiar question. What do you want me to do for you? Do you remember this was just uttered moments ago? He asked it to James and John, right? And they botched it. And so now James and John are standing next to Jesus and Jesus says the same question. And they're like, oh, we missed this one. <laughs> he asked the same question to Bartimaeus and he says, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, he said, your faith has healed you. Mark tells us that he immediately received his sight, and he what? He followed him along the way, followed, way, discipleship words. Bartimaeus is the model disciple. James and John had been with him for years. They missed it. Bartimaeus has this one encounter. He's the model disciple. You may be interested to know that Bartimaeus is the only, dis only beggar, blind man, person that was healed, other than Lazarus in the book of John, that has a name. It wasn't common for Jesus to heal people and name them. Why? Because they would be healed and they'd go home. The disciples probably didn't even know their names. They couldn't have written it down in their gospels anyway. But Mark knew Bartimaeus, and Mark remembered this story, and he says, this is how Bartimaeus was healed. And the people in the church was like, that's how Bartimaeus was healed? <laughs> There's a good chance they would have known Bartimaeus. He's a disciple that follows Jesus up the hill. And so we have two, disciple, two models of discipleship. You have James and John, who want to be, be near Christ in his glory, and we've got Bartimaeus, who just want to be near Jesus, the son of David. And so I want to end this morning with a brief comparison of these two approaches. What can we learn from James and John? What did they get wrong, and what did Bartimaeus get right? What are we getting wrong in our thoughts of discipleship? 